0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Today we'll read from John chapter three. We'll read from verses sixteen through twenty-one. It says this most famous verse in all the Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world may be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and that men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, yet yet his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been performed or wrought in God. Amen. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the effect of this right here. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the effect of this right here. Don't worry, I won't set the sanctuary on fire. Because when I was a kid, I thought that this had no effect on my life. I thought this was just something that I knew, that I was supposed to know, that I was supposed to be able to recite in Awana, in Sunday school, and all that kind of good stuff. And I thought that this thing had no effect on my life whatsoever. I remember I was about eight years old. It was the very first time that I heard this right here. At least I remember I was at Miss Coffin's house, if some of you online and probably some of you in this room remember them, the Coffins. But I was at their house, I was at a five-day club, and I was called into a different room. And I remember it was a dark room, and I remember a bunch of kids, they, they had their heads bowed, and I was kind of wondering why everybody's heads were bowed and everybody was praying. And then somebody led me in a little prayer, and then I opened my eyes and I was told that I was a Christian. But nothing changed. It was just something that I knew. There's something, some facts, some information that I understood in my mind that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died for my sins, and that if I believe in Him, I will be saved. But knowing something doesn't save you. Believing in Jesus Christ is what saves you. But do not be fooled. The effect of this, called the Gospel, reaches far beyond just eternal life. It changes everything about our identity, everything about who we are. And that is what I wanted to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the effect of the gospel. So if you have your Bible, turn in John chapter 3. Today we're answering the question, what is the effect of the gospel? And if you were to outline verses 16 through 21, you would see that the gospel is in verse 16 and 17. And then you would see the effect in verses 18 through 21. But in order to really appreciate, in order to really capture what is going on in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, we must put it in its context. My mentor, Gary Hogan, used to say that any text taken out of context is a pretext for heresy, if you remember that. Now, as some of you know, today is part four of the Nicodemus story. Now, to be completely in... Open. I did not expect to spend four weeks going from verse 1 through verse 21 of John chapter 3. But as I unpacked this text, I realized there's just so much that we do not understand, especially on a cultural level. So I've spent extensive time just trying to understand Nicodemus and the lens that he uses to understand the Bible and understand who this Jesus guy is. Because culturally speaking, in John chapter 3, there's so, many, so much we take for granted that we, believe it or not, whether we know it or not, what do we do? We, when we open the Bible, when we read the Bible, we read it as a 21st century American and not as a 1st century Jew. Because in the 1st century, if we could take a step back there, in John chapter 3, we realize that Nicodemus is completely blind, that he is spiritually dead. In fact, we say this, that he is blind, but he also has layers of scales that blind him to the truth of the gospel. Because as mentioned before, Nicodemus thought that because he was a child of Abraham, that he would inherit the kingdom of God. But what does Jesus say in John chapter 3? Verse 3, he says this, Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that word born again means from be, from born from above, that he cannot see the kingdom of God. But what do we know now as culturally speaking, as we spent three weeks just talking about the culture, we know that Nicodemus also thought that he was also born again. How many times was Nicodemus in his eyes born again? Four times. He was had a bar mitzvah, he was married, he was a teacher of the law, and he was a master teacher of a school. So in Nicodemus's mind, he thinks he qualifies once again to be born again, and to receive the kingdom of God. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nicodemus thought that he could be spiritually born again by his religion, by doing good things, by performing external acts. But why is that a lie? Because flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit. We cannot take the good things that we do and internally renew our soul and become right with God. So if you've been here for a few weeks, then you know that John chapter 3... In verses 1 through 13, Jesus spends that time essentially peeling back the scales of lies and the blindness of Nicodemus. He's trying to essentially convince Nicodemus in verses 1 through 13 that he is still spiritually lost. That although he may think he's saved, he may think that he's right with God, but he is truly lost. And then he spends verses 14 through 17 communicating the gospel. And how does Jesus communicate the gospel? He does it in two main ways. He does it first with illustration and the second with explanation. How does Jesus illustrate the gospel? He does it in two ways. Verse 13 talks about the Son of Man reference. I'll read it for us. Verse verse 13 says, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And we unpack that out of Daniel chapter 7. But what is that talking about? It's really telling Nicodemus the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. But then he uses a second illustration in verse 14. It says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Verse 13 explained Jesus' identity. And verse 14 explained Jesus' purpose. And then if you notice the gospel, the good news, boils down to two main ingredients. We like to add stuff in there, right? We like to kind of, or we really don't know what the gospel is, even though we've probably heard it most of our lives. The gospel, the good news, boils down to two main ingredients. Verse 16 says this, For God so loved the world, That God saw the condition of the world, he saw our sin, he saw our rebellion, he saw our mistakes, he saw that we could not justify ourselves before God, and then he said, I love them, and then what did he do in response to greeting number two? He says, he sent his son to be the payment for our sin. And what is our response to that truth? It is one of two things, right? It is either rejection or reception. It is either rejecting the gospel, putting it off, blowing out the match, or it is receiving and changing and believing in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But do not be fooled. Do not be like me when I was eight years old, that I thought that the gospel was just something that you knew, something that you kind of put off when you were more serious about your faith. I remember as a teenager, I thought that I would get serious about my faith when I had a family. And then God decided to go slap me around a little bit and tell me that I need to get serious about my faith Now, because delaying the gospel, delaying following Jesus Christ is, in a sense, a rejection of it. Do not be fooled. The gospel has butterfly effects, has massive implications, both when we reject the gospel, but also when we receive the gospel. And these effects are what I see in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21 I want you to notice real quickly again, I will read verse 16 and 17, and then we will unpack it together. Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world, that word love there is agape, it's a self-sacrificial love, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How many of you just turned off your brain when you read that verse? We've heard it so many times. But it's awesome. Verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. As I already mentioned here, what do we see? Verse 16 is the gospel that God loved the world. Notice that word loved. We'll talk about it here more in just a few seconds. And then God sent His Son to pay for our sin. But if you notice, verse 17 is an expansion of verse 16. Notice verse 17 again. It says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world may be saved through Him. Why did God send His Son into the world? Notice it says to save the world, not to judge the world. It's explicit. Just ask the question then. Why didn't Jesus come into the world to judge the world? Why didn't Jesus come into the world to judge the world? Because the world was already judged. What's the proof that we already have judgment for our sin? Dwight Pentecost says this, the world was already judged for sin. That because of Adam's sin, that we inherit judgment of sin has already taken place. Jesus did not come into the world to judge. Why? Because we are already judged for our sin. I asked a simple question this week at staff meeting, but it's a very deep and theological question. What is the evidence that we are already judged for our sin? I'm asking that. What is the evidence that we are judged? If you don't know, you don't have to answer. okay, But what is the evidence that we are judged for our sin? Yeah, it's death. Death is evidence that we are judged for our sin. Death is the unmistakable evidence of God's judgment for our sin. What did he say to Adam Adam in the garden of Eden? In the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Every funeral that I do reminds me of sin and the judgment for it, and every funeral reminds me that I am in desperate need of a Savior. So we see verse 17 as an expansion of verse 16. Verse 16 is essentially the good news, the gospel. But then where we're going to spend most of our time together here today is we're going to see the effects of the gospel, and I see six of them. In verses 18 through 21, I see six effects. Three if we reject the gospel, and three if we receive the gospel. Notice as I read, see if you can spot all six of them. And one's in verse 16, I'll let you, there you go. Verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the dark world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. Notice that word loved again. Put it in your mind. Verse 40, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, as I already mentioned, I see three effects of rejecting the gospel and three effects of receiving the gospel. If we... If we reject the gospel (laughs) Turn it to burn the carpet. Okay, there we go. Okay. It didn't burn. Don't panic. Okay. (laughs) If we reject the gospel, what is the first effect? What does it say in verse? 18 of chapter 3, it says, He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. If you have a pen, circle that word, has or those words, has been judged already. That word judged is a perfect tense verb. A perfect tense tells me in the original language that it is a past event with continuing ongoing results. So, we are already judged for our sin. And the evidence of our judgment is death. But when were we judged? We are judged in the past, and it continues without Christ into the indefinite future. We are judged through what? Through the original sin of Adam. What does it say in Romans chapter 5? That we inherit our sin nature from Adam. That if we continue to reject Jesus Christ, then we continue to walk in condemnation. But then notice, what is the judgment? Notice verse 19. It says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. If we reject the gospel, what is the effect? Effect number one is that we will continue to be in judgment and effect number two, it reveals one's love of darkness. And men love the darkness rather than the light i want you to notice a couple different things about this word i want you to first notice the imagery of light and darkness but i also want you to notice that word loved again it's the same word as in verse 16 what does it say and men loved the darkness the light has come into the world, and when one rejects the light, they are rejecting it for love of darkness. It's the same word, agape, in verse 19 as it is in verse 16. I won't say it's in the same, but it in a similar way that God self-sacrificially loved us and saw the world, so we also, in our innate broken selves, in our souls, we also love sin. Can, if you don't believe me, can't... If you don't believe me that we as broken people love sin, then just look around you. Go outside the walls. Go on Facebook. Can I get an amen to that one? If you're not convinced that men, that we as broken and sinful human beings love the darkness, then just look around you. Look at the world. Look how it contrasts the light and the glory and the grace and the perfection of God with the imperfection and the love of sin and darkness. When we reject the gospel, number one, we continue in judgment and reveals our love of darkness. But then notice effect number three. If you have your text, the notice in verse 20 begins with the word for. F-O-R. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Effect number three is that believing in light exposes your own darkness. That in order to believe in Jesus Christ, it requires us to understand really his light, his greatness, his perfection, his propitiation, his satisfaction, his payment for our sins. But it also requires us to look in the mirror. Why would we, why would we confess to need Jesus if we see that there is nothing wrong? That believing in Jesus, seeing the gospel, understanding his love and his grace and his gift of salvation requires us to look in the mirror at our own sin. It exposes our sin and darkness. It shines light. I want you to do something with me. I want you to hop, back. I want you to hop in a DeLorean and go back to the first century with me. I did date myself on that. I want you to put on the shoes of Nicodemus, and I want you to imagine him. He's there at night. He sees Jesus. He's talking to Jesus. And I want you to imagine how he feels when he hears these words in verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. It does not come into the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light and that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. When Nicodemus hears those words, what is he thinking? In his mind, Nicodemus isn't judged by God. Because why? Because at the moment of his own conception, he is born to a Jewish family. And he thinks that because he is a child of Abraham, because that his great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham and the patriarchs, because of that, he thinks that he will naturally inherit the kingdom of God. But what is Jesus saying here? That you have already been judged that even though you're a child of Abraham, that is still not good enough to stand before God innocent of your sins. And then what else does he hear? That not only does Nicodemus stand condemned and judged of a sin, but that if he doesn't believe in Jesus, that Nicodemus is professing to love sin. And not only that, but Nicodemus is also professing to be afraid that his sins will be exposed. Which is all true. I want you to think about Nicodemus. Put on his shoes for just a second. If Nicodemus believes in Jesus, what does he lose? Not only does he confess that he is wrong and that he's a sinner, but he loses everything. He is part of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the most important men in all of Israel. He is a master teacher of a school in Israel. He is respected, he is highly esteemed. And if he believes in Jesus, not only will he lose everything. Not only will he have his deeds exposed, but he will then understand that he is a sinner. I just want to, allow me just to be blunt. Um, I think we have it really easy in America. Can I say it that way? I think we have it real easy in America. Because we think that as a Christian, shouldn't cost us anything. But I believe in the near future that being a follower of Jesus Christ is going to be costly. And as I look at the scripture, believing in Jesus Christ and following him is a costly Thing. And what is Nicodemus wrestling with here? He is wrestling with the thought okay, is it worth it? Is it worth the fact to believe in Jesus and then I lose all of this prestige, all of this status, all of the glory of mankind to follow a man that my peers will soon reject? When one encounters Jesus, when one understands their promise and the gift of the gospel, then one's life is one seen like in Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have this passage in the back of your mind, I would put it there. It says this, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking pearls. And while finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. Nicodemus here in John chapter 3 is faced with a very difficult decision. The prestige of the world or the promise of the gospel, the respect of his peers or the redemption of his soul, the rejection of a savior or the reception of salvation. He can't have both. I don't know where you stand with Jesus. Jesus. But as I see the scripture in John chapter three verses eighteen through twenty-one, it forces us to make a decision. Some of you are faced with the same decision that Nicodemus is facing: that you will either have to sacrifice the world for Jesus, or that you will sacrifice Jesus for the world. If we reject the gospel, what is the effect? Continual judgment. It reveals one's love of darkness. It is. It has fear of exposing one's own deeds. But then what is the effect if we receive Jesus? Notice one is found in verse 16, one is found in verse 18, and one is found in verse 21. Notice verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What is the effect if I believe in Jesus? Effect number one is what? Effect number one is what? Eternal life. But... Let's just, be, let's, let's just be transparent for just a second. That If you've grown up in church your whole life, then that statement has become a bit stale. Can we get, yes? Think, yes? But that, that phrase, eternal life, is so radical. It is so awesome. Because as I understand the Bible and in, in the Gospel of John, that word doesn't just mean eternal life. That I get to float up into the universe and run around in the rings of Saturn for the rest of time. What I understand that word to mean is that we will have eternal aliveness. That in heaven we will know God as we were supposed to know God. That we will live not only in eternal paradise forever, but that in heaven we will live the lives we were meant to live in perfect harmony with God. But Notice effect number two in verse 18. It says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, what is the effect for those who receive Jesus? Effect number one is eternal life. Effect number two is no judgment. Can I get an amen to that one? The effect number two of believing in Jesus Christ is no judgment. What does the Bible say? Where do, what do other passages of Scripture say about this idea? Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says what? Yeah. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that by the blood of Christ we now stand before God, justified, declared innocent from our sin. What else does it say in Romans chapter 5, verse 15? It says, But the free gift, the gift of salvation, the gift that Jesus gives us through the gospel, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For by the transgression of one, the many died much more. Did the grace of God and the gift of God, by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So all does Believing, receiving the gospel not only does it grant me eternal aliveness not only does it free me from judgment of my sin before God the Father that we are declared innocent where it's called justified but it also gives me a third thing it allows me to do something notice verse 21 but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God now uh, I don't when I read this text for the first time, I really didn't even know what that word rot meant. Uh, is anyone else confused on that word? I thought rot meant something rotting in my fridge, okay? But that word rot means to be performed. So read it again with me. It says, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been performed or done in God. So what is the effect of the gospel? Not only do we have eternal life. No only do we stand before God the Father without judgment. But what else? It gives us the ability to perform good deeds. Effect number three of receiving Jesus is practicing truth. I want you to notice that word performed there. It is, I'm about to get TMI on you as well. That word rot or performed is a perfect passive participle. Okay? The passive tense tells me that it is an outside agent doing the action. So if you put it all together that we are wrought in God and knows that word in, it's not for God, but it's in God. That when I receive the gospel, God gives me the power to do good things in his name. We have we have such a man-centered idea of the gospel that we think the gospel is about me, the gospel is about me, that Jesus saved me, which is, in a sense, true. But the gospel is not really about you and me. It's about God, that he loved us. He sent his son for us. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ had come and he's died for my sins, is not really about me. It's about God and displaying his love and his glory to the ends of the earth and to the ends of the universe. When I proclaim the good news in John 3.16, that is a praise to our God Almighty. Let us change our perspective that the gospel is not just about us, but it's really about displaying God's love and his grace and his justice and his mercy to the ends of the universe. Let us change our perspective from a man-centered idea of the gospel to a God-centered idea of the gospel. All illustrations break down at some point, but we are a crowd in a football game. We benefit from the toil of another. We are the recipients of God's grace and love. The gospel is about Him, about His glory and His fame. We are just recipients of the gospel But as recipients, let us then do the truth. Let us not just know the truth. Let us not just tuck it away in the closets of our mind. But let us, in verse 21, let us practice the truth. I want you to catch this. I'm about to uh, throw down, I would say. Okay, that means I'm about to go crazy on information. Okay. I want you to catch the gospel effect contrast that we are without the gospel before Jesus Christ, that we are dead, that we are judged, that we are a lover of darkness, that we hate truth, that we are fearful, we are powerless, we are rejected. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are judged from the moment of conception. We love the darkness. We hate the light. We are fearful our deeds will be exposed. We are powerless to save ourselves. We are powerless to do anything that pleases God, and we are rejected. Whereas we are dead, judged, lover of darkness, fearful, powerless, and rejected, God loved, he sent, he gave, he justified, he gifted, and he empowered God loved the world so much that he sent his son. God sent his son to die. God gave the sacrifice of his son as a gift. I, if you've grown up in the church, I, I, know, I, I know that I'm not, doing, I'm not sharing anything really new. I know that. <laughs> and if you've tuned out for me for the last 30 minutes, then I'm sorry. But this is the most life-giving truth in all of the universe. I hope and I pray that the gospel, that the truth of God's word, that going through John chapter 3 for four weeks does not get old. If you've noticed that my last four sermons have sounded very similar, and it's because they are. It's because John chapter 3 verses 1 through 20 all centers on the gospel, that God loved, that God sent, that God gave, that God the judge justifies, that if we believe in Jesus Christ, that we now stand before him declared innocent despite our guilt, that God then gifts Salvation, that's crazy. That God doesn't make us earn it. He doesn't make us pay for it. He doesn't do anything. He gives eternal life to us as a gift. It's something free that costs Him dearly. And then what I find amazing is that God empowers us then. He doesn't just check the box of fire insurance. Oh, okay, they're saved and then they're going to be with me in paradise. But according to verse 21, He also gives us the power to Do good things for his will and for his name. My point today is this. The gospel, do not be fooled. The gospel creates change. The gospel creates change. Rejection continues judgment. And receiving supplies freedom. The gospel creates change. Rejection continues judgment. And receiving continues freedom. If I can illustrate it this way, you probably have figured it out by now. This bucket is you. Lifeless, dead, dead in your trespasses and sins, lifeless. Okay, this right here is your soul. Okay, I'm going to open it up because I didn't figure out how to do the special nozzle. Okay, there you go. Okay. Okay. This bucket is you And this gas in here Is your lifeless soul That is dead without Jesus Christ And this Is the gospel This, can't, this match represents the gospel And this flame represents the moment that you hear it In the moment that you hear the gospel You have a choice to make You can either receive the gospel and experience life or you can reject the gospel and remain dead in your trespasses and sins. The decision I leave to you. What do you choose? Do you choose to remain lifeless and stale because you would rather follow the ways of the world or would you rather be find aliveness in Jesus Christ and follow him with the rest of your life? Yeah, as a preacher, I share the gospel every Sunday morning and I can't force anybody to do much of anything. But what do you choose today? And for believers it's here today, I imagine most of us in here at least think we are Christians like I did when I was eight years old. For you, I would encourage you to do three main things. Number one, I would encourage you to switch to a God-centered idea of the gospel. That the gospel really is not about you, but it's about displaying God's love and His grace to the ends of the universe. Number two, I would encourage you to relish, to read the truth of the gospel you know, I'm fearful that the gospel has become stale. It's become just that thing that we feel like the gospel is like this bucket. But nothing can be further from the truth that through the gospel, through the provision of Jesus Christ, not only do we have eternal liveness, but that we have been made right with God. That we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And not only that, but through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ, that we are declared what? That we are declared children of God and co-heirs with Christ. And not only that, do we then experience God's endless and faithful love. Number two, I would encourage you to read the truth of the scripture. And then step number three, I would encourage you to live out the gospel. I would encourage you to live out the gospel. Practice good deeds. Share the gospel with your life and with your words with your co-workers. Do they know that you are a Christian? Do they know that you are saved? That you are a follower of Jesus Christ? I would encourage you that the gospel would be more than just a bunch of fire insurance. But it would change your life not only eternally speaking but also earthly speaking. I pray it would be like this. I'm going to close with these three verses. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. From joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And by finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. I pray that that would be our lives. Bow with me a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, John chapter 3 verses uh, 1 through 21 is just packed with culture, with truth of the gospel, of the good news, but also truth of who we are without you. That we are, we stand condemned in our sin, whether we like to admit it or not. Lord, I pray for those that do not know you, that may know you in fact, but do not know you in uh, belief. I pray for those people that they would trust in you, that they would uh, be willing to love you over the darkness, be willing to expose their sin to you in exchange to have redemption and life. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. I just pray for the believers in here that the gospel would not become that thing; It would become good news. It would be life-changing truth that we put on a lampstand. We don't put it under a bushel, but we put it on a lampstand for the world to see. Lord, I pray that we would ex- exercise good deeds in this world so that the world may look at our love and at our lives and our encouragement for one another and say, what do they have that I do not? Lord, it is an honor to be here and to be pastor of this church. I thank you for those that are not able to be here this morning. I pray that you would continue to protect them. I pray that we as Christians, that we would continually encourage one another, encourage those that are not here. And I thank you for your grace and your love. And I pray that you be with the baptism that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.